Happy Friday. Uh, happy Vlad Jr. Day. I think Craig Needles crowned it Vlad Jr. Day earlier today. We will have the Blue Jays and the Oakland A's for you tonight. You can hear Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s debut. His dad went one for five with a single and then went on to be a nine-time All-Star, a baseball Hall of Famer, won the MVP, one of the scariest hitters anyone ever faced. Actually, later in the show, here's what we need to do. The late Roy Halladay had a really interesting way of looking at facing Vladimir Guerrero Sr. So we'll find that and we'll play that for you because it just showed what kind of a hitter he was. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr., if you watch, somebody had developed a a little something side-by-side that was posted and it was Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Vladimir Guerrero Sr., all grown up, like not not back when he was five years old running around with his dad in an Expos uniform, but taking swings, and it just shows how similar those swings are. So it's a very exciting day for the Blue Jays as a guy who is 20 years old and 41 days gets set to make his debut. We'll talk more about that a little later on. Do you find that vanity plates make people more annoying? I'm not asking for a friend. I'm not looking at getting one, but I was driving on Wonderland, and it's not like I got cut off. I didn't have to apply my brakes or anything, but a person with a vanity plate, without signaling, moved from their lane right into my lane, right in front of me. So, not really cut off in that I didn't, again, I didn't have to stop or anything, but they had a vanity plate, and it made it annoying. Their vanity plate was Tony Pony. T-O-N-Y-P-O-N-I. If it had been C-D-A-C-657, there's no way I would have even have noticed. I mean, it would, it would just be, oh, that person's getting a little close. That's part of driving on Wonderland Road, right? That just happens. But because their plate said Tony Pony, I found myself getting really angry behind the wheel. Look at you, Tony Pony. Not signaling. It was kind of like that episode on Community. Did you ever watch Community? Jeff was the one who led kind of a study session. It was based at a community college, and there were a lot of adult learners there. And Jeff was pointing out that you could person or personal or personify something, and he used a pencil as an example. You know, he said, "I could take this pencil, name it Steve, break it in half, which he does, and throw it on the ground, and a little piece of you inside would die." Same sort of thing. That car, instead of being CDAC 657, becomes an actual thing with a name. That's Tony Pony. That's the car that doesn't signal. Cuts in front of people on Wonderland Road. And if you're Tony Pony, well, hey, use your signal. People will be less upset. Do you not find that? Personify things. And it changes. I do have one question before we get started on a number of things today. Hey, Hall of Famer Fergie Jenkins is on the show today. Looking forward to that. That's coming up in about an hour from now. We're also going to talk about cooking and why we aren't doing more of it at home. It's so easy to go out. Too easy to go out. So we have two national online journalists from Global News who have been studying this, and they are going to join us in about a half hour and tell us why it is that we're not really cooking at home. And they've looked at a number of different angles to this story. I'm eager to find that out because you find that. And if you were to take, 
If you do a budget and you were to take the amount of money that you would spend eating out, very quickly you would go, whoa, I spend that much a year on coffee? If you're in a position to do so, a lot of people will top $1,000 a year in coffee. Think about it. It's not hard. You have two a day every day, you're over $1,000. Are you not? Yeah, for sure you are. Buck 80, twice a day? It seems like nothing, but at the end of the year, you're over 1000 bucks. And if you added up eating out, you know that trip you've always wanted to take to Hawaii? You could probably afford that over a few years. But then you've got the argument, well, I, I helped to fuel the economy. We're also going to talk about driving around on a motorcycle in 2019. What is that like? Because warm weather is coming. Motorcyclists are out there. They're paying less in gas than the rest of us. I don't know what gas prices are going to do next week. I think it depends on what happens on the stock market between now and sometime next week. But we've only seen them go up, and we've only been warned that they're going to go up even higher. But we're going to talk about what it's like to maneuver around in our world with a very experienced motorcyclist on the show. But here's the question that I have. I need your help on this. My son, who is about to turn 16, has a semi-formal tonight. And he threw out a question last night. And ultimately, he will make the decision on this. But I thought, yeah, I, I wonder what the accepted norm is anymore. And I'm sure that I'm in the old guy category all of a sudden. He said, tomorrow night, Got my semi-formal, he's got his shirt all ready, got his pants all ready, got his date all ready, it's all set. The question he had was, tie or no tie? He's got a great tie. It's this blue tie, it's a good power tie. But tie or no tie? What is the norm anymore when it comes to guys dressing up? Because more often, we're seeing fewer ties, right? I love ties. I will miss the day when ties are no longer acceptable. I have a lot of ties. One of them has a map on it. I use it to get home sometimes. It's important to wear ties. 519-643-2222 if you can help out or you can email mike at 980cfpl.ca. Let's solve this right here and right now when it comes to men's fashion, tie or no tie. What is the accepted norm these days? 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Marilyn, I count on you to know these things. Tie or no tie? (laughs) Well, dear, I don't think anything goes today, so it doesn't matter. And your son is so doggone good-looking that it doesn't (laughs) matter if if he wore overalls. And a no-plaid shirt, he'd still look handsome. Well, thank you very much. Tie or no tie, you say it doesn't matter, anything goes in 2019. Can I tell you a wee bit of a story? I love stories. All right. My grandson is 21 now, and um, he got all ready for his his prom a couple of years ago. He bought the uh, tuxedo and the cummerbund to match the girl's dress. And bought her a corsage, and he got all ready to go and pick her up when she phoned him at the last minute and said she was going with her friends. No. That was so mean. Oh, that's crushing. But, you know, he went anyway, just put his jeans and a T-shirt on and went. 
Wow, that is that's that's a sad story. But did things was there a happy ending because he he went anyway? No, no, wasn't. But he, he had friends. Um, he's got lots of friends, so he had fun. Can I tell you a little bit about my? Sure. My my prom. I went with a a boy who had just moved in up the street, and I told him, and I said, "This is how I ask him. You wouldn't want to go to the prom with me, would you?" What a way to ask. But he did. He looked like Elvis Presley. Oh, that was a night to remember. Now, did he dance like Elvis Presley, Marilyn? Oh, did he ever dance? And uh, he looked so handsome. And you know what he did? He took me home to meet his mother. Well, you made an impression on him then. And he bought me a croissant. Oh, what a gentleman. Marilyn, thank you for sharing all of that, even the sad stuff. I'm glad you followed it up with a happy story. You have a great weekend. Well, you tell Jack to have a great night tonight and that he could just wear an old pair of overalls <laughs> and he would be the handsomest man in the room. <laughs> you are too nice, but I will pass that on to him. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, a couple of emails to catch up on. Kevin says, tie is a must. Gord says, no tie. And Derek says, get with the times, Mike. You shouldn't be wearing ties anymore. They've been out of style for at least five years. Really? No. I like the ties. It's kind of like that thing that's going around in the UK right now where they're trying to figure out whether or not you can shake somebody's hand, that they would outlaw handshakes. I think you, you need to be able to do that. If it's part of your look, if it's part of, yeah, that's that's you, you got to do that. Just like shaking hands. You can say a lot without saying anything by the way that you shake hands. 519-643-2222. Ultimately, you know what the right answer is in this tie versus no tie? What's your date want? That's, guys can learn good lessons even at the age of 16. Tie or no tie, you know what the right answer is? What does your date want? That's the right answer. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. couple more emails to get to on tie or no tie. And if you want to weigh in on this, it's Friday. Here's what we're trying to do. Solve the problems of the world? Mm, not really. My son has a semi-formal tonight. That was a question he threw out there. Now, I already know the right answer is, what does your date want? But tie or no tie? What is acceptable for a guy? Marilyn has said anything goes. Uh, Gord said no tie. Kevin said tie is a must. And Derek told me to get with the times. Uh, here's one that has come in from Shelly. Shelly says, as someone who used to buy her father a tie every year for both his birthday and Father's Day, I don't ever want to see the tradition of ties go anywhere. All right. I don't either. I'm I am a big fan of ties. Absolutely. These these need to stay. But does it cause it to be too formal a setting? You know, I mean, the the people who have no tie on, I always look relaxed. Think about what happened at weddings. How many weddings have you been at where everybody was wearing their tie early? Where do the ties go at the end of the night? On your head. Absolutely. That's where they go. And the people who are willing to remove their ties, look at that symbol. Think of how symbolic it is to remove a tie and either put it around your head and have it flapping in the breeze as you run amok around the dance floor at a wedding, or just the ability to take it off. You look so relaxed. Look at Brian Burke. Brian Burke created the style of unbuttoning that top button and kind of laying the tie around him. What does that say? I 
am ready to relax. That's what that is. So, I don't know. Can you still put ties around your head if they're not around your neck? Hey, do you have any kind of Google Home or Amazon Alexa? I know yesterday a lot was talked about regarding Facebook and how much information had been shared. And we do live in an age where you might pop onto a computer somewhere and all of a sudden there's your credit card information. How did that get there? Well, you had your name and you must have used that computer to buy something before. It's just there. Remembers it. Automatic. It's helping you, right? But if you have Google Home or if you have Amazon Alexa, we always hear how much they are listening, right? And we ended up getting a speaker a little while ago that we have in our kitchen. And in the morning, you can actually come down and say, Alexa, play 980 CFPL, Global News Radio, and poop, it comes on. That just happens. Because why? Well, Alexa is technically listening. And it's neat because you used to have to say, play 980 CFPL radio, and then it would come on. Now Alexa has kind of tuned in and has realized, and this happens. And I'm not saying it's our Alexa. I think it's widespread. But now they're getting used to when you want to play a radio station, you can say, play 980 CFPL, and Alexa will play that. So there are always concerns over what is being captured, what is, what is being heard, all of those sorts of things. We live in a world where that's, that's just a thing. I mean, here's, here's a different example. And I think we're getting to a stage, and I don't know, I'm, I'm in a parenting situation that is different from anyone with young children. I have older children now. And we've talked before about the car apps where when they have your car, you can actually see where the car is and you kind of eavesdrop. And and I've told the story before where I got caught doing that, right? Where I, I was the ultimate dad where our car, my daughter had it, and it was parked in a place that I thought there's no way she would be there. It's like an industrial area. What What is going on? And I noticed it there because she hadn't come home and she'd forgotten her phone at home. So she couldn't tell us that, you know, we couldn't call her. I, I was that guy. I tried to call and do, 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 do off in her bedroom was the sound of the phone. So I did that dad thing. I got in the car. And I went and I told my wife, well, I need gas anyway. I'm just going gonna, gonna to go out and get gas. I'll just take kind of a roundabout way and I'll go through that area and I'll just uh, see that everything's okay, right? And it wasn't as industrial as I thought and there were actually houses. And as I turned down the street, there I was and she was sitting talking with a friend of hers who was going through a bit of a rough time. And her friend recognized me and said, wasn't that your dad who just drove by? And it was like, it wasn't a dead-end street, so I didn't have to turn around and go back. But it was the next best thing to a dead-end street, so I was able to get away. But yeah, they saw me. Because you have the ability to check up on people. And I don't know where the parameters lie in all of this. Because, you know, privacy is something that a lot of people take very, very seriously. And rightly so. Should you be able to have someone eavesdrop on your conversations? Probably not. Is Alexa doing that? Is Google Home doing that? I don't know how much we can prove and how much we can't prove about that at this point. Because the device has to listen 
The device has to always be ready in case you say, hey, Google, turn off the lights or whatever else it's programmed to do. In the case of a speaker, hey, Google, can you play me some Alice in Chains? That kind of stuff. But when it comes to privacy in other ways, see, I, I struggle to know where it is that we should fit in with all of this. I would love a thing. You know what? You know what app I would love? Maybe this is just me getting to be an old dad. But I would love an app where when you pushed on the app, you had anybody who, you know, you bothered to care about the, the health of. So, in other words, your family members. And all it would show was, yeah, the heart's still beating. That's all, that's all I would need to know. I don't necessarily care where my kids are, what they're doing. I do, but they have their own lives. And I trust that we've brought them up well enough that they can go out and they can do what they do and they're going to make right choices. And if they make wrong choices, well, they're going to accept the consequences. That kind of thing happens. So they have a lot of free reign, but I still want to be that dad who can say, I just want to make sure they're okay. Yep, heart's still beating. Okay, good stuff. Carry on. That's the kind of thing that that I, I find comfort in almost. Is it strange that way? You know, our kids are on Snapchat, and every once in a while you can look. Sometimes they ghost themselves, and you know, they have every, every right to do that. But if you've seen what a Snap map is, it basically takes a Google map, and it has little caricatures of you and any of your friends, and it shows you where they are the last time that their phone pinged in. So you won't get a completely accurate representation of where they are unless they have pinged in. In that case, you can actually zoom in. You can see what building they're in. I think you can even see what part of the building they're in. That's creepy. But at the same time, yeah, if I just want to know what you're up to, you know, back in the day, you'd have kids go out and they would be playing outside. And if they came back in when the streetlights came on, they had done their job. Before cell phones, you know, if you had a teenager, there's no way that they would even check in can't get them to check in you i don't know if there was an emergency what would you do you call the last place that you thought they were i i have no idea what you would do can't imagine being a parent then and as much as i don't consider myself a helicopter parent i think i have a couple of rotors at least above my head but it's just checking up on things it's just making sure everything's okay we live in that kind of a society so it's interesting to see that the Amazon Alexa and Google Home debate continues on. And just recently, Bloomberg reported that a group of Amazon staff, whose job it is to monitor some of the recordings captured by the assistant, has the ability to view location data. So you've got humans who are, are kind of looking through and saying, okay, here's, here's what the human voices are asking. How can we make this particular thing work better? And then they get to work and they program it in. But now they can view location data. And that's all of a sudden sent everybody into this whole, wow, no, 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 we, we shouldn't allow that. Same as we shouldn't allow Facebook to share information, which has, again, been the big topic of conversation the last 36 hours. Overall, though, do we not have to just get used to this is going to happen? People are going to know where you are unless you do the ultimate. Get yourself off the grid. And I remember Bob telling us a story a while ago. You know how hard it is to get off the grid? Yeah. Uh, you got to have to make your own fire almost. That's, that's where you get to. So, interesting. Check out the Bloomberg report. In fact, I'll tweet it out, and you can have a look through that if you would like to. You can find me on Twitter at Stubbs980. We'll take a break for news. Still to come, cooking at home, 
why we aren't doing it as much as we used to, and riding a motorcycle in 2019 and what that is like. That's coming up in the next half hour of London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Just to finish off, tie or no tie, let me get to the last tweets and emails on this. Andrea says, tell them to save the tie for graduation. So semi-formal, not formal enough for a tie. Um, Also, Andy had said, let me get to Andy's in just a second here. Uh, Andy says, uh, I'm 39. Maybe a bit old school. I say tie. Can't go wrong with a tie. Tie or no tie? We'll continue that debate. Email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet at Stubbs980. While that debate broils on, here's another one. How's today going to play out at the end for you? As you finish work today, it's Friday, remember. You at home, end of a long week, been working hard. Southwestern Ontario right now, it's a little drab. Not a lot of sun. Although sun may have the patio calling to you. Will you go home and cook tonight? Do you go home and cook tonight? Period. Statistics Canada came out with a little something that stated 54% of Canadians eat out once a week or more. 40% say they eat out for convenience, have no time to cook, do not like to cook, or, I'll put myself in this category, do not know how to cook. I can give you a great recipe for cheese on a plate, noodles and sauce. Other than that, not so much. And I just, I, it's not me. It's like me in the stock market. I don't I have no idea what's going on in the stock market, no idea what's going on in the kitchen, and no real passion to learn either one. So let's explore this a little bit more because there is a little something you can read at globalnews.ca, and it is called Why Aren't Canadians Cooking Anymore? If you want to Google that. And from there, you will be united with Laura Hensley and Megan Cauley, both national online journalists with Global News in smart living and entertainment. And we are lucky enough to welcome Laura back to the show and to welcome Megan to the show right now. Laura, Megan, how are things? Hi, Hi thanks for having us. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, let's, let's start, Laura, with you. Why aren't Canadians cooking anymore? Well, like you were mentioning in your intro, a lot of us are eating out pretty regularly. And some of the reasons why is because it's so easy to have food delivered to your house through your phone. You can go online to Uber Eats, Foodora. There is endless opportunities to get food delivered. So part of it is that we're lazy and we're relying on these apps. And the other part of it is that a lot of us don't actually know how to cook. Um, one of the nutritionists that I spoke to, she said that so many Canadians just weren't taught when they were growing up, and then they become adults, and they have no clue how to navigate the kitchen. <laughs> and that, that makes perfect sense. Megan, when you went looking to piece all of this together, what did you want to find out? I think what we wanted to find out was why people, as you say, as they weren't cooking as much. And I think one thing that... Uh, really resonated with me was how busy everybody is. It feels like there's a lot of pressure, you know, to be working longer hours, to be getting to the gym after work, to be having a social life. And when you try and jam all of those things into one day, uh, cooking, I think, is one of uh, the things everybody needs to eat, but not everybody has time to cook. 
Now, you were able to speak with a couple of people in creating this article, and one of them said that Canadians struggled to know how to make pretty common foods. Uh, what was one of them that they really struggled to make, Laura? Well, one of them was fish. So the dietitian I spoke to said that a lot of Canadians love to eat fish, but they'll only really eat it when they go to a restaurant and they don't know how to cook it at home. And that's, you know, there's fear around how to make it. They think it's going to stink up their kitchen. And so they're like, this is something I just don't want to even touch. Um, Another food that really causes confusion is legumes. So things like chickpeas and lentils and beans, again, things that people really enjoy eating when they get takeout. But when it comes to making it themselves, they're just, you know, lost. <laughs> We're talking right now with Laura Hensley and Megan Cauley, National Online Journalist for Global News in Smart Living and Entertainment. And here we are talking about trying to live smart and maybe save a few bucks. As Laura and Megan have pointed out, it's pretty easy to go out. And whether it is, sure, skip the dish, uh, Uber Eats, you name it, they will go and get the food for you and bring it to you for not that much more money. I mean, Megan, when you look at, at the ease of either eating out or even ordering in, how much of an impact do you think that has? Oh, I think that's everything, right? Um, I think that's why people are uh, turning towards these apps like so many people are doing it. But I think one thing we need to think about is it's actually, you know, that money adds up over time and it can be tough to control the nutrients you're getting. You don't really have as much of a grasp on what's actually in your food when you're ordering from restaurants. And I think another thing we found too was that um, cooking can be super therapeutic. It can be nice to take a break from your phone or Netflix or work and, you know, really be thoughtful with the food that you're preparing, whether it's for you or for your loved ones. Yeah, that's a good point. Therapeutic. I hadn't thought of that. Laura, do you find that when you cook? Well, I don't really cook too, too much. And it sounds like a bit of a hypocrite. I'm writing about why we don't cook, and then it turns out I don't actually. But I have things that I feel comfortable cooking. So I'll make the same things over and over again. And I don't know if I find it therapeutic, but I do like having, like Megan said, a bit more control over what I'm eating. So I know that if I'm making something at home, it's probably going to be healthier than if I was ordering, you know, skip the dishes every single night. Megan, how about you? Do you cook much? I'm not going to lie, like humble brag a little bit. I do cook most of my food um, and I really enjoy it. I really find a great satisfaction in watching other people eat the food that I cook and like nod along and, you know, go, mmm, ah, delicious. Yeah, no, I really like cooking. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking right now with Laura Hensley and Megan Cauley, National Online Journalist for Global News in Smart Living and Entertainment. One last thing, and Laura, you had pointed out, and Megan, you pointed out the fact that you can't control the foods that restaurants are providing. And one of the things that is, is it true? Restaurants don't necessarily uh, throw a lot of vegetables onto a plate that they may not actually be putting as many vegetables out there as we need to have. Exactly. And that's what the nutritionist pointed out. So when you order food, chances are they're not actually giving you, you know, the amount of fruits and vegetables that you're supposed to be having every day. So usually things that taste good are sugar, salt, basically the things that get added to the food. And those can sort of take away from the nutritional value of things that you'd be cooking at home. So say you order pizza, well, you might have a little bit of vegetables on it, but you're also getting tons of cheese, which is not necessarily a great thing. 
So the taste might be there with the takeout food, but the nutritional value isn't. And one of the other things we looked at when we were um, reporting on this is meal kits. And we did a huge series here at Global News about um, cooking and meal kits. And we found it was even meal kits, so those food kits that you order, um, still there's not necessarily always the same nutritional value that you would be getting if you just made things from scratch using your own ingredients. All right, one final thing, and Megan, since you are someone who has admitted that you will cook, how do you get to the end of the day when you are busy, when maybe the gym is calling or you've got other stuff to do, how do you get to the end of the day and still say, yeah, I can I can still cook, I can get this done? Yeah, you know what? It is tough, but I try to make things as easy as possible for myself. I like to take an hour or so on Sunday afternoon and do a little bit of meal prepping, you know, chopping the things I'm going to need for the week, setting things up so it's super easy, grab and go. Um, and I'm not going to lie, I don't, I, I only use a few recipes a week. So the repetition makes it easier too. I know exactly what I'm having for that day. And then the next Sunday, I head out to the grocery store again to try some new things. Okay. Great tips. Laura, Megan, great article. Thank you so much for joining us on London Live today. Thanks Thanks for having having us. Take care. Bye. Laura Hensley, Megan Cauley joining us. They are national online journalists for Global News. So those things that sound like they are common sense, but they never are. You know, and then you look at the fact that if you do eat out a whole lot, what are you eating? What are you getting? Next thing you know, you're off to the doctor and the doctor's saying, you know, your blood pressure. Have you seen this? These numbers, they're big. What are you eating? I don't know. Nothing? The same stuff? I'm not doing anything different. Are you eating out more? Yeah, I guess. A lot of salt in your diet? I suppose. If you're eating out a lot, yeah, there probably is a lot of salt in your diet. Next thing you know, you've got that issue that you then have to find a way to control. So let's take a break. Up next, we will talk about motorcyclists and what it's like to be a motorcyclist in 2019, still to come on the show, Baseball Hall of Famer Fergie Jenkins. I want to go back to something that Roy Halladay said about Vladimir Guerrero Sr. And we will also talk about something that could help people with epilepsy in a big way. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. All right, we're going to talk about what it's like to ride a motorcycle in 2019 in about an hour from now. Just a little change in the way that the show will go today. But we mentioned something that could help epilepsy sufferers. And it is something that also has an interesting story that then has a very interesting London tie to it. And it will come up on Monday. See, there's a little girl who has epilepsy. Her name is Ava Petrie, and she actually lives in Windsor, but she's going to be in London on Monday because she's been doing something pretty amazing. In fact, instead of me telling the story, let's get somebody who can do a whole lot better job telling the story. Michelle Franklin is the CEO of Epilepsy Southwestern Ontario. Michelle, how is Friday going? Wonderful. Always happy going into a weekend. Oh, and coming out of the weekend, you have a big (laughs) announcement thanks to someone who is six years old who may one day run for prime minister. I hope she does the way that she's going so far. Can you fill us in on what six-year-old Ava has been up to? Yes. So Ava Petrie has uh, epilepsy. 
and she wanted everybody to have an anti-suffocation pillow or a seizure-safe pillow to sleep at night. And so she made bath bombs and lip chaps and soaps, and her and her mom sold them and raised $9,000 to be put in our discretionary fund to allow um, access for people that can't afford uh, these pillows. Whoa. Okay. Hang on. Let me, let me try and picture this in my head here. We should all picture this. So she was making soaps. You mentioned bath bombs and raised nine lip chap, raised (laughs) $9,000. Think of how many bath bombs and soaps and lip chaps you'd have to, you'd have to sell. That's incredible. I know. She's a pretty amazing little epilepsy warrior. Uh, They did have some community support and some corporations who uh, sold products and then um, gave some donations back to Ava. So, but $9,000 is 45 pillows. Wow. Okay. Well then let's talk about these pillows because I don't know if many of us even knew there was such thing as an anti-suffocation pillow. What exactly is that? Okay. So it's a a pillow that is designed, um, it has kind of peaks and ridges in it and it's a, it's not feather. It's a different, it's a foam, uh, kind of texture. Um, and for people that have convulsive seizures at nighttime when they're sleeping, um, if, if they're unconscious and their face is in their pillow, there's a risk of suffocation. So, uh, the anti-suffocation pillows are used to provide, um, to reduce anxiety, really, around sleep-related uh, suffocation. So it brings parents a lot of reassurance that their child's safe. Um, it just makes people feel better. So, For someone who has epilepsy, how common would seizures be at night? Um, everyone is very, very different. So um, everyone's frequency and duration of seizures varies. So uh, the pillow is, is really only... Uh, a safety suggestion for people that have convulsive seizures at nighttime. But at the same time, if there's even a risk of that happening one time, you're going to want to have one of those. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Coulter's Pharmacy is great uh, to us and they prov- they're our supplier of the pillows. So um, it, it's the, he just keeps them, Scott keeps them ordered in and then whenever we need them, we connect with him and it's a great partnership. Well, Scott's a great friend of London Live and our London Nights broadcasts. And in fact, at one o'clock in the afternoon, that's when Ava is going to be presenting her $9,000 check. Is that happening at Coulter's Pharmacy? It is, yes. So we're going to, Ava and her mom, Erin, are coming down from Windsor, and uh, we have a great big check, so there will be a photo opportunity, and Ava is just a little pumpkin, so uh, she's a pleasure to meet, and you can sense her fire and her uh, commitment in a six-year-old. It's it's really quite remarkable. We're talking with Michelle Franklin, CEO of Epilepsy Southwestern Ontario. Now, you mentioned Ava is coming from Windsor. Does that show how large an area Epilepsy Southwestern Ontario actually services? Yes. So we're enti- entirety of Epilepsy Southwestern Ontario. So Woodstock to Windsor, everything in between. Um, yeah. So Ava's one of our, our um, clients from Windsor. When someone is diagnosed with epilepsy at a young age, what does it usually take in order to say, yes, this is what your child has? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, parents usually notice some behaviors or some um, physical characteristics that aren't or that are atypical for a child. And so um, they would go to their family physician who an EEG is really the first uh, tool that they use to identify whether someone has epilepsy or not. Um, But the medical definition of epilepsy is two or more unprovoked seizures. 
Um, so it's actually one in a hundred people have it. So it's actually a lot more common than people realize. One in a hundred people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Had, we had no idea that, that that was, that was how, you know, how prevalent epilepsy was one in a hundred people. Mm-hmm. It's actually more frequent uh, in um, the senior population. Just if you think of things that can cause damage to your brain, um, like Alzheimer's or strokes, those types of things can cause up uh, can be uh, causes of epilepsy, and so it is a little more prevalent in the senior population. So it's not something that you're necessarily born with and will present itself at a young age. No, it can happen to anyone at any time, and in fact, ten percent of the population will have at least one seizure in their life. Hmm. Well, then taking a look at having a pillow that would be an anti-suffocation pillow, that's uh, that's fantastic. And for somebody who is six years old to raise $9,000 in order to put into a fund to make sure that we've got more pillows, that's even better. Michelle, thank you yeah. so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. Enjoy the weekend and enjoy Monday. You're welcome. Thank you for having having us on as well. We appreciate it. Michelle Franklin, CEO of Epilepsy Southwestern Ontario. So that comes up on Monday. How about that? Six years old, raises $9,000. Okay, more tie or no tie. The debate continues. If you missed it off the start of the show, my son is heading to a semi-formal tonight and is wondering tie or no tie. He asked us that last night. I love ties. I love ties. I have a lot of ties. The right answer is, what does your date want? That is the right answer. But Richard has said, Mike, no tie. Ties are way too corporate, and there's a recent groundswell of hostility towards corporations. Not wearing ties is symbolic and more comfortable. I don't know. I'm, if I'm dressed up, I like the feeling of that, that tight collar. Am I weird? Probably. I'll tell you what's coming up next on London Live when we return. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Tire no Man, I'm interrupting today. Tire no tie debate. Kathy says, do what the majority of the other guys do. Safety in numbers. That's good advice. Although I know that one of my son's buddies is wearing a Hawaiian shirt, or at least a shirt with pineapples on it. And the other one I think is wearing a white t-shirt. This is a semi-formal. Coming up after two o'clock, Fergie Jenkins. Baseball Hall of Famer in just about any Hall of Fame Fergie Jenkins could possibly be in. He's in it. And he's going to join us to talk some baseball because Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is making his debut tonight. I want to go back to something the late Roy Halladay said about Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s father, Vladimir Guerrero Sr. And we'll talk motorcycling in 2019. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Man, it is going to be interesting to see what happens with the AF, the Alliance of American Football. I know it's it's gone. League folded, plop, that's it. But this wasn't so much a league as it was an app and a way to bet within games and to see whether this technology was up to snuff. That's That's essentially what this was. That's why you had Hurricanes owner Tom Dundon buying in. Now he's all excited about his Hurricanes, I'm sure. But he bought into this to get that technology because ultimately that's where sports is headed. We're going to talk about sports in a much more pure form in just a couple of minutes. Fergie Jenkins, 
Hall of Famer in just about any Hall of Fame he was ever eligible for is going to join us. He's out west, and we have a big event happening in St. Mary's tomorrow as the reopening, the grand reopening of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum takes place at 10 a.m. So we'll talk about his association. He's one of the members of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, but his association, Fergie Jenkins, has been so fantastic over the years, whether it's going out and playing in the slow-pitch games that take place on induction weekend, whether it's being the MC, whether it's giving speeches. He's just a phenomenal guy. So we'll tell some baseball stories in just a little bit. If you're a baseball fan, even if you're not, you can become one tonight. 980 CFPL has the Blue Jays and the Oakland A's, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to make his Major League debut. You'll hear it happen on 980 CFPL. His dad went one for five in his debut. And how good a prospect is Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? Well, all of the big-time, hey, I know how good prospects are, say he's really, really good. So that's coming up. But as far as the AF goes, here's why I bring it up. There are players now who are coming out, one of them being Kenneth Farrow II, who says that they are getting medical bills mailed to them from minicamp lab work conducted by teams. And he's tweeted this out so people know. He has tagged Charlie Ebersall, who was kind of the founder of the league, and there were good people involved with this. Bill Polian was involved with this. He's a, a really classy guy from the National Football League. But the idea that players are getting bills from work that they would have just had to go through. Hey, yeah, we're going to do some blood tests and stuff. Yeah, 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 okay, this is this is just routine stuff. You would never have to pay for that. You would never even think that you would have to pay for that. But there is some carnage and there is some collateral damage from the AF. And it does look like it is the players. If you look at how the league kind of – how it changed, they were making everything seem great at the beginning, and then they started to run out of money, and then they needed Tom Dundon. And all of a sudden, and I don't know whether this was Tom Dundon who came in and changed it. There's no nothing linking that, but the league started to run out of money. So you started to have fewer and fewer people going on the road. You started to have fewer and fewer of the luxuries. And next thing you know, the league is done. But now to get medical bills... You know how much it costs? You want to go to the United States without insurance and get checked out for a cold? That'll run you about a thousand bucks. But the league itself was basically there for the technology in its app. And whether or not it's still, because when technology comes out, it's for a little while, it's Pong, right? No matter what it is. We look at, we talked last hour about Alexa and or Amazon Alexa and Google Smart Home. They're Pong right now. What they can do, Pong. Pretty soon, it'll be Atari. And then, was ColecoVision that much better than Atari? I don't know if it was. Pretty soon, they will be Sega Genesis. And then, I don't even know, what do we call it now? Xbox One and PS4? Yeah, pretty soon it'll be there. Can you imagine when those little robotic helpers around the house are able to be the equivalent of that if they're Pong right now. Well, this app might be Pong, but eventually it's going to grow into something that leagues can make use of to, and we've talked about this for a long time on London Live, and we've talked to a lot of experts who said, yeah, this is the way they're going. What they want to be able to do is offer in-game betting 
The NBA will probably be one of the first ones to do it so that you can look at somebody. Steph Curry's dribbling on the free throw line, and you have the ability to put an amount of money down on whether or not he makes the shot. That's what they want. There's big money to be had there. There are big problems that are going to go along with that. That's scary stuff. When it's that easy to gamble, it's also that easy to lose money. And Steph Curry hitting a free throw, as much as it's it's a pretty good bet, it's never a certainty. And then all of a sudden you get other people up there and then you get other ways to bet. You can do it in-game now, but again, it's not as friendly as it could be. And that's what they are getting closer and closer to. Doesn't it make you wish for back when the game was just pure? No matter what game we're talking about. Back when you didn't necessarily have all the money and the dollars tied up into it. Look at what the Toronto Maple Leafs are talking about now. The Maple Leafs are going to have to fill out their fourth line at least with journeymen. I mean, contact the Leafs. If you play hockey right now, maybe you'll be able to play for them. They want cheap. You willing to block some shots? They're going to have to have that in order to keep the core of their team together. The Chicago Blackhawks went through all kinds of trouble because they had to sign Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves. That's two people. The Leafs will have three people. John Tavares, Austin Matthews, and Mitch Marner, all making huge money. So, Leaf fans, it's going to get a little tough. Makes you long for the purity of the day, right? No money, no gambling stuff. In a moment, we'll talk some baseball purity with one of the legends of the game. Fergie Jenkins is going to join us next on London Live. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Coming up tomorrow, the grand reopening of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. In St. Mary's, they've done some pretty amazing things to it. You will not recognize the look of it, even from the outside. You will not. Somebody who's been a huge supporter of it, he is an inductee of not only the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, but many Hall of Fames around Major League Baseball and the Baseball Hall of Fame itself in Cooperstown. Please welcome to London Live, Hall of Famer Fergie Jenkins. Fergie, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How's everything? Everything. (laughs) Not too bad. Is it true that you've been making your way through the Rocky Mountains recently? Yes, uh, we uh, left... uh... About a week and a half ago, uh, in Toronto, went through the, uh, all the way to Jasper, Jasper to Edmonton, and now we're in Calgary. Fergie, you have been such a great part of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame for so long. Uh, Give us your thoughts, even going back to when you were first inducted. What was that like? Well, you know, being inducted into your uh, home country, especially the Canadian Hall of Fame there in St. Mary's, uh, quite surprised. And uh, uh, when I got there, uh, you know, you're not overwhelmed, but uh, it's nice to see what they've done over the past uh, 10, 15 years because of the improvement. Uh, like any museum, they want to improve it year to year. And uh, what's nice is they've been doing that on a slow process, and they've got it done. We're talking with Fergie Jenkins, Cy Young Award winner and Hall of Famer, anywhere you can be in a Hall of Fame. If, if you look at, at kind of the, the people that go in year after year, you are a regular, it seems, at the ceremony. What kind of conversations do you have with people about being inducted? What do you guys talk about? 
Well, Scott Crawford being the uh, individual that's basically the CEO manager there now, it, it's nice to talk to the new inductees. Uh, getting inducted into any Hall of Fame, uh, you're, you're quite in awe because of the fact that uh, a country has honored you in that respect. And it's always good to hear their, their viewpoints. And a lot of the guys are surprised, but once they get there, uh, it, it kind of keys them down, and they enjoy doing it. Fergie, do you still watch a lot of baseball? I still work for the Chicago Cubs, so I see quite a few games. Uh, six weeks of spring training, I see quite a few games. And uh, when the season starts, I'm there for some opening days. I uh, went to Texas when the Cubs opened up the, this year interleague play, and then when they opened up at home uh, later on in April, I was there for that. Wrigley Field, home opener. I mean, you've been there in so many different capacities. What is that like? It, it's, it's quite a festival. Uh, this year we had five Hall of Famers. You know, Billy Williams, uh, Ryan Sandberg, Andre Dawson, myself, and then the new inductee, Lee Smith. And uh, they had something like 42,000 people, standing room only, for Wrigley Field. And it was quite a festival. Uh, Cubs played extremely well in one opening day. How are things different now that the Cubs have won a World Series in, you know, in now going back to just the last couple of years? What's different? Well, you know, Tom Ricketts being the new owner, uh, and the individual that really puts things together in that respect. Uh, it's now called Wrigleyville instead of just Wrigley Field uh, because there's so many different restaurants and businesses around in the area. But they've improved the ballpark with the, the sweet production, the new field, uh, new stands, new concession. Uh, Wrigley Field has really changed uh, from the years that I was there in, in the 60s and 70s and part of the 80s. Fergie Jenkins joining us as we talk some baseball, as we get set for the grand reopening of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Where were you and what were you doing when the Cubs won the World Series? I was there for the three games they played at home, uh, uh, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then when they won it uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, I was home watching it on television. Uh, and I was really surprised that they, they played as well. Their hitting came around. And back then they had great pitching, and that was part of what was the production part of how they won the series because they had such good pitching. So I just think that uh, uh, if they can continue to do that, they maybe could follow it up again in 2019 with a, with a playoff run to try to get back into the, maybe the World Series again. Good pitching's always been the key, hasn't it? Oh, totally. I, I think without the pitching, uh, you're not going to go far in that division. Uh, Milwaukee, the Cardinals, Cincinnati, they, they've got a, a, a great division. That central division is pretty strong. When you look at the way that pitching has changed, do you think you would enjoy being a pitcher in the majors today with pitch counts being what they are? And you look at Tampa Bay, sometimes they'll use an opener in games. Would you enjoy the, the way that the game goes, or did you like getting the ball at the beginning of the game and trying to get to the end of the game? Well, that was the format back when I played. Uh, you got the game, you got the ball, and the game started. Now they have a relief pitcher that starts the game. Uh, it's changed a bit, but I think it all depends on, on the manager and management to who uh, 
gets the opportunity to start a ball game and to continue. And I had a lot of complete ball games, so the game in that respect has changed. And as you said, the pitch count, uh, I throw 150 pitches to win a ball game sometimes, or maybe less than 100. So it's totally different now. You look at, at completing a game. What was that feeling like as a pitcher to know you'd gone from start to finish? Well, the nice thing about it is, is you studied the oppo- opponent ball club and you knew who you had to face and how many times you wanted to face them. Uh, leadoff guys, second guy, third guy. If you had to face an individual three to four times, they're going to see exactly what you're trying to and the approach you're trying to get them out with. So it's a, it's a cat and mouse game sometimes. But uh, playing in my era, we had good defense, good offense. So I wasn't afraid to to throw certain pitches to certain people in pitch count. So, and I was very fortunate to, to have a lot of complete ball games in my career. So I looked, was looking forward to playing against guys like the Pittsburgh Pirates, the San Francisco Giants, Cincinnati Reds, Philadelphia Phillies. So that was a, that was a, that was a challenge in itself. We are talking baseball with Fergie Jenkins, the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, set to have its grand reopening. You mentioned studying. I mean, video was not what it was when you were pitching. What would you do in order to to study or keep notes on opposing hitters? Well, a lot of times I would keep my own book on on certain individuals, uh, guys like Johnny Bench, uh, Roberto Clemente, uh, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, on what... I thought pitches were uh, my strength to get them out. And now they have video. Uh, in our area, we charted the games. There was a large white sheet with a diamond on it, uh, consisting of many, many diamonds going all the way down to, to the ninth or tenth inning. And you would chart a slider hit to right field, fastball hit up the middle, or breaking ball hit to center field. So it was all totally different back then. And pitchers charted the game the day you pitched and sometimes the day after you pitched, uh, to just understand what hitters and what pitches they like to hit. It was all changed back then. Would you ever look at changing anything in your in your stance, in your delivery, in your release, depending on, on who you were facing, or, or was that just, no, 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 you, you do what you do, you deliver the ball, how you deliver the ball? Well, we had one pitching coach. Uh, I had Robin Roberts for a while, Joe Becker later on, Cal McClish, when I first started with the Phillies, he wanted to watch your arm angle. Uh, I think the number one thing is you didn't want to change your arm angle. I was a three-quarter arm thrower, a fastball slider, curveball changeup. So if I changed or dropped down, uh, if, the, if the innings got uh, piled up from the ninth, tenth, or whatever, how many innings I had to pitch, if I got tired and they see my arm drop, they would let me know that factor because maybe I was getting tired. Uh, late in the game, maybe throwing uh, X amount of pitches. So the pitching coach is the individual that watches you, and sometimes maybe your fellow pitcher on your ball club will tell you, hey, you're doing something wrong with your delivery. You might be tipping off a pitch. Uh, And that always helps when someone can give you that type of advice. Well, it helped you to 3,192 strikeouts, and as we said, a Hall of Famer in any Hall of Fame that you can be inducted in. Fergie, congratulations on the career. Thank you so much for supporting the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum as much as you have, and uh, can't wait to see you back there. Uh, thanks, Mike. I'm looking forward to being there on the 25th. should be a lot of fun. ceremony should be outstanding, and I, I think it's good for Canada. 
All the best. Enjoy the rest of the vacation. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mike. Baseball Hall of Famer Fergie Jenkins joining us on London Live. And, again, he will be back in St. Mary's. If you want to visit St. Mary's and check out the new digs, the grand reopening of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum happens tomorrow. So a big day in St. Mary's. Big night in Toronto. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Most evaluators have him as the top prospect in all of Major League Baseball. He will make his debut for the Toronto Blue Jays. You know, John Gibbons, former Jays manager, was in town a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, on April 1st, actually, at the latest sports celebrity dinner and auction in support of the Thames Valley Children's Center. And before the night began, he was just talking and and he was saying, and he didn't he didn't have to point this out because he's now a former manager of the Blue Jays. This was not towing the party line or anything. But he just said, you know what? There are a lot of exciting young players with the Blue Jays right now. This team is going to be good. And the Jays have already picked up some wins lately that you would think, whoa, 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 this this isn't the way the season started. But wait a minute. Some of these young guys, look at them. And now Vladimir Guerrero Jr. comes in. Problem is, he comes in with all kinds of hype. And it won't be easy, but at least at least he has that dad who has been there before. And a lot of times, if you see the sons of professional athletes, they're able to handle things a whole lot better. It's not about, hey, I've arrived and I'm supposed to be here. It's, yeah, I've, I've grown up in the clubhouse I know how to act. I know some of the pressures. I know how fans are going to react. I know the expectations and what happens if you do not meet those expectations instantly. And Vladimir Guerrero Sr. was one of the best hitters ever. And somebody grabbed a swing of Vladimir Guerrero Sr.'s and a swing of Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s and put them side by side. And they are very, very similar. Now, that's not to say that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. will follow in his father's footsteps, but we managed to find a clip of the late Roy Halladay when he was being inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. And he had a great line about facing Vladimir Guerrero Sr. We used to always talk about him in hitters' meetings. And they said... Bounce it, he'll hit it. If it's two feet inside, he'll hit it. If it's off the plate away, he'll hit it. They said sometimes your best shot's to throw it down the middle. He might swing and miss. <laughs> that is the late Roy Halladay when he was being inducted. So when facing Vladimir Guerrero Sr., if you throw it outside, he'll hit it. If you bounce it, he'll hit it. doesn't matter where you threw it. He would hit it. Your best bet, throw it down the middle. Maybe he's not expecting it. Maybe he swings and misses. Not Sure whether Vladimir Guerrero Jr. will ever get to that, but who knows? If you don't know the story, I'll tell it very quickly, of the Jays discovering Vladimir Guerrero Jr. They had an international scout named Ismail Cruz, and I think he's now with the Dodgers, and that's a big loss. This this guy's good in terms of scouting talent. And he was in the Dominican, and he organized this little workout session for a bunch of 14-year-old baseball players. So he brought them in, and a bunch of them are hitting kind of at the same time. And all of a sudden, you hear this noise. And Alex Anthopoulos was the GM of the Blue Jays at the time. And he looked over after hearing the noise. And this hitter had just launched a ball. And he turned to Ismail Cruz and said, who's that? 
And Ismail said, oh, that's Vladdy's kid, meaning that was Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Two years after that, when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. had turned 16, the Jays signed him. That's how they got him. But it was the sound of him hitting. wasn't necessarily, oh, look at him. He's hitting a whole bunch of home runs in this workout session. The sound of the ball coming off the bat. The special ones have that. And so many people have already compared Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to a a Prince Fielder or even a Cecil Fielder. When you heard the ball coming off the bat of either Prince Fielder or Cecil Fielder, it just sounded different. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has that. We'll take a break for news. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. This morning, I almost ran out of soap. Have you ever had that happen? Well, actually, I did run out of soap. But fortunately, and I, I did remember to write it on the grocery list on the side of the fridge. Do you ever have those weeks where you're eating everything in the cupboard and in the pantry and in the fridge? We're having one of those weeks. Let's just finish up everything that's there. That way you don't have things go all rotten and, and have to throw out a bunch of food. That's the aim anyway. But... We are running out of soap in the house. We have teenagers. They shower often. So luckily, I was able to go into the back of a drawer, and I happened to find a hotel soap. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but if there's an extra soap kicking around, I'll tuck that in my bag, and I'll take that. Same with the little shampoo bottles. But California now is looking at outlawing those little shampoo bottles. Because they are looking at the amount of plastic that's used. We talked yesterday on London Live with Aaron Woodrick, who is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And one of the things that they'd been made aware of that they're now looking into, and there isn't any clarification on this from the federal government, but the idea is there could be a plastic tax coming in Canada. We have our carbon tax. There could be a plastic tax. Not sure how it would work. This was discovered in the bowels of some report somewhere. Somebody had to be reading all of the words in this report in order to find this. And maybe it's a suggestion. Maybe it's a proposal. It doesn't seem to have that many legs just yet. And let's face it. If Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is going to turn favor back his way, which is not the thing that's happening right now, look at the polls, but if he's going to turn favor back his way, the thing that is not going to help with that is a new tax. So I wouldn't expect this to be brought up. That's one of those things that would really put another dent into his campaign as we get closer and closer to election time. But the idea is there that maybe someday plastic tax and that would cause people to think twice about how much plastic they used. In California, what they're doing is they are putting a ban on hotels providing guests with the little bottles for shampoo and conditioner or even some of the soaps. I would have been out of luck this morning because they've got those little dispensers that now hang in the showers saying that the amount of plastic that comes out of those bottles represents a sizable amount of waste And they've got a bill that's been put forward by a guy from San Jose who's an assembly member in the state legislature, and it's AB1162. And he's trying to get those little bottles outlawed. I like the little bottles. They're useful if you travel. You can even fly with them. No, don't take away my little bottles of soap and shampoo. Do you take those? Am I supposed to be taking those? It's not like I take other stuff. I don't take the robes. I don't take the closet doors. I know not to take that stuff, but aren't, 
you know, what are you going to do with those? I've already used half of it. I should be able to take the other half, right? That's not a bad thing. I don't know. I don't know what the hotel etiquette anymore is. Up next, we're going to talk motorcycle etiquette. Wait a minute. Why? Well, it is getting warmer, and we do have more motorcycles out there. And if you do ride a motorcycle, then you know some of the challenges already. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk with someone who has had some great experience in a couple of different ways. He has been riding a motorcycle for 40 years, number one. And he served in part of those 40 years on a motorcycle as a traffic sergeant with London Police Service. So we are going to be able to get some really unique perspective on what it's like to be on a bike from someone who has done it in a professional capacity and in a recreational capacity. And that is retired police sergeant Tom O'Brien. He'll join us. And here's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn what it's like to be a motorcyclist riding around in 2019. I can't imagine it feels completely safe all of the time. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm driving around in a four-wheeled vehicle that has all kinds of airbags here and there and crash testing certification and all of those good things, sometimes I don't feel safe with other drivers on the road. What if I didn't have those doors? What if I didn't have those airbags? I've... I'm not the motorcycle kind of guy, but because the warmer weather is coming and we will have more motorcycle riders out there on the roads, we'll learn what it's like from their perspective in 2019 next on London Live. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We do our best to ride around safely. You don't want to run into what insurance is going to do to you if you don't. We've got those bike lanes, which are really coming along very well along King Street to get that east-west corridor for cyclists. If you are a motorcyclist, you are just a vehicle out there with the rest of us four tired drivers. And with that, and with the warm weather coming, whenever it does finally decide to arrive... It's probably a good idea to get some perspective on what it's like to ride a motorbike. They say that if you are going to ride a bike, you are going to get an experience like you wouldn't believe. Have you ever read the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? It's an old, old book now, but it's still worth a read. And it's essentially about traveling across the U.S. riding a motorbike. And you get that 360 perspective. There is absolutely no experience like it. And talk to anybody who rides a bike, that's what they will tell you. That experience, being able to not be encased in this little hurtling capsule, being able to just look around and and have that full feel of everything around you, that makes it. But if you're not necessarily going on a, a big trip down Route 66, what's it like on a day to day? Basis. How dangerous does it feel? Well, please welcome to London Live somebody who knows from a couple of different perspectives. He is retired police sergeant Tom O'Brien, who served as the traffic sergeant with London Police Services for several years before he retired and has been riding a motorcycle for a long time. Tom, great to have you with us. How has retirement been treating you? 
Well, you know what, Mike? Uh, it's hard to believe it's been three years since I left the uh, London Police Service, and uh, I've been enjoying uh, tra- or enjoying the retirement uh, very much so. Well, that's good to hear. That's excellent to hear. Are you still riding a bike by any chance? I am. As a matter of fact, uh, this week I'm getting it ready to get out on the road. Uh, it's been, a, you know what, I, it's hard to believe I've uh, had my motorcycle license for 40 years. 40 so it's been years. a while. Now, when can you think back to the the first year you decided, you know what, I'm going to get my motorcycle license, I'm going to get a bike. Can you remember what that felt like? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I had never been on one, and my parents were not in favor of me getting it. And uh, when I bought it used, the owner dropped it off at uh, my house. I didn't have a license, and it took me about an hour to learn how to even start it. So (laughs) that's how naive I was at the time. And I've come a long way since then. (laughs) Well, when you look at riding a bike, let's say 40 years ago, compared to riding a bike now in a public setting, are they different than they used to be, or is is the setting about the same? No, you know what? That brings up a couple of good points. Uh, Obviously, 40 years ago, I was in a smaller town. The traffic wasn't as complex, but... I was naive and full of uh, uh, eagerness, let's put it that way. And so uh, 40 years later, I've got 40 years' worth of motorcycling under my belt, that much experience, including, you know, the the 10 years with the traffic unit on bikes. And uh, although I'm in a more complex environment, like the uh, traffic situation in London, um, I've toned down my... Um, eagerness to go fast, for example. I'm more careful. So big. a lot of things have changed in those 40 years. When you look at traffic around you, how do you think the traffic behaves? Is it more sensitive to motorcycles now? Was it more sensitive then? Has it even changed at all? I don't know that it has changed at all. Um, but you, another good point you're bringing up is we live in London, southwestern Ontario, and unlike places in California or the southern, or the sunny south, where they see motorcycles 12 months a year, ours disappear. They hibernate most often uh, from October till maybe uh, the end of April. And so I think the, uh, the point to make on that is our London motorists, our, our uh, car drivers, uh, have had a bit of a hiatus from uh, needing that vigilant uh, concentration on the fact that there's others that share the road. So they, they haven't been used to the motorcycles being out there um, like they do in the summer, and we don't want them to make mistakes as they get used to it again. So some reminders are really nice so that, A, the motorcyclists uh, know what they're doing, but more importantly, the, uh, the car drivers out there realize, hey, the better weather's here, and now we're going to see or not see motorcycles if we're not paying attention. Retired Police Sergeant Tom O'Brien joining us. Okay, let's look at some of those tips. How can anyone who drives in a vehicle make life feel at least a little more comfortable, a little safer for those who are driving motorcycles? Well, you know what? Um, (laughs) That would be a conversation that uh, would obviously include uh, concentration and therefore cell phones and and so on. 
And so uh, a driver of a car needs to, as I always said, drive cooperatively, and they need to care about other people, pedestrians, bicyclists, and motorcyclists. They need to keep their eyes up. They need to be uh, seeing what they're looking at, and they need to pay attention to the road ahead of them um, when they're going through complex intersections and about to turn right or left, uh, primarily left, um, because that's the, probably the most dangerous time for a motorcyclist as they enter an intersection. Okay, so, yeah, definitely put down the distractions. How about in terms of spacing? If you are riding a bike and a vehicle is pretty close behind you, what's that feel like? Wow. Uh, it, it can make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, especially uh, when there's a bit of speed involved. You know, we always talk about uh, a leaving two-second following distance from vehicles, and that is primarily to allow that car in front of us to stop safely and for the following car to do so at the same time if there was an emergency. Well, we know that uh, stopping with four wheels is is much easier than stopping at speed on two wheels. And so for a, a motorcyclist to be uh, looking in the rearview mirror and seeing a car tailgating them, that that's a nerve-wracking situation. And, and the motorcyclist is saying, you know what, uh, just give me some space. Like, if, if I need to brake rapidly... I might be able to come to a stop, but you won't, and you're going to injure me. So it's just, uh, you know, that kind of a, a thought process for cars interacting with the motorcycle. Retired London Police Sergeant Tom O'Brien with us. Tom, do you look at it if you're on a bike that at some point you have to be ready to what they would call put the bike down? In other words, you have to be willing to say, hey, I'm in a situation where unless I put the bike down and slide, something really bad could happen. Absolutely. And that brings up the point where I would say that for novice motorcyclists, new drivers, and even some of the seasoned drivers, uh, refresher courses, take a course on uh, how to properly ride a motorcycle. And some of the topics that would be covered would be emergency situations, emergency steering, uh, braking, and, of course, putting the bike down if that's the last resort. And I recall back in the early 80s, I had to do that. A car uh, turned in front of me, and I knew that the collision would be far uh, more serious if I had just run into the vehicle so uh, it was uh, sliding into it was the only option I had. So uh, taking a lesson, and some of this only comes with experience, but uh, you would really do yourself a favor if you took uh, a lesson out there. And there are there, those defensive driving type lessons for motorcyclists. So you've seen that where a car turns in front of you and you have to make that split second decision. What happened? You, you put the bike down and you, you slid into the side of it? Right. I... Uh, I remember that I was going home from work and it was early in the morning and this car turned on an amber light in front of me and I knew that uh, if I were to just hit it square, then it would be far more serious and uh, the, the bike went down or I put it down and slid into the back area and just flew over the trunk of it and thankfully suffered only minor injuries. So uh, I was lucky in that case.
Wow. But yeah, be on the lookout, especially when you're making those turns, because there are going to be motorcyclists on the road and refresher courses for motorcyclists themselves. Well, Tom, it's been great catching up with you. Everything else is going well? Everything is is, uh, very good, Uh, Mike. uh, Having a lot of fun in retirement and uh, enjoying some of the things that I didn't have time to do when I was uh, working the beat. Love to hear it. Well, thank you again for what you did when you were on that beat, and thanks for the time today. Great. Great talking to you, Mike. Great talking to you. Retired Police Sergeant Tom O'Brien. So, little of life as a guy riding a motorcycle or a girl riding a motorcycle in 2019. Trucker Brian, great to hear from you. How are things? Good, sir. How are you? Not bad. What's up? So, I, uh, I too, used to ride a motorcycle. I got in my first serious accident here in London with a lady doing a U-turn in front of me. I was naive, got back on the bike, rode again, almost collided with a person just outside of London. I was on a main road. He was cutting across the main road, and he ran the stop sign. I luckily came to a stop. I parked my bike, and I retired from riding a motorcycle. Uh, it's, it's way too dangerous. Unfortunately, it was nice to have Tom O'Brien come on. I've met him many times. He would know me if he saw me. Um, he missed the point. Vehicles and people that drive cars need to get refresher courses. Because yeah. too many people in the city are driving with their head up their arse. And a young man the other night passed away, who's a co-worker of mine, because somebody had their head up their ass. He left behind a wife and two beautiful young children. It's no joke. Motorcycle driving is it, it, it's, it's, it's exhilarating. It's like chaining your body to a hood and doing 80 kilometers an hour. It's an amazing feeling. And it's unfortunate that people who enjoy riding have to sometimes give it up because too many vehicles out there are too busy doing anything else but driving. I consider myself a professional because I drive an 18-wheeler, and I witness stupidity on a daily basis, and I get middle fingers because I've moved over or I've had to do something to save somebody else's life, and in return, I get a middle finger because I saved your life or I can cream into your van full of children. But unfortunately, Jody Peterson lost his life this week, and motorists out here just really have to be careful. I love the message. And we've got to talk about that again, because we need more tests than just between the ages of 16 and 80. That's that's not enough. Trucker Brian? Oh, sorry, go ahead. If the MTO was right and smart about it, people in vehicles, I have to get retested every five years. Yeah. Why don't Everybody we? with a driver's license needs to be retested. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. And yeah. If you can't drive on the road, then get the hell off our streets. Well said. Have a great weekend. Right. We'll take a break. Close out the show in a moment. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. That is it for this afternoon. Have yourself a great weekend. News is coming up with Jacqueline LaBelle. London Live. Brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln, 684 Warncliffe Road South. Thanks to Andrew Graham for all his help this afternoon. And thank you to all of our guests for all of their input. Again, news coming up next with Jacqueline LaBelle. You are listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.